This week on the Backtable Podcast. I think a lot of it is really setting the right expectation. If you are at 80% before surgery, the best I can make you back, back up is at 80%. You know, most likely it will come short a little bit already. So I think sometimes maybe you can add in a little bit of kind of an expectation kind of thing. If you are a Viagra guy before surgery, best case scenario, you'll be a Viagra guy afterwards, you know? So I think that kind of puts some perspective in them and have them kind of do a little bit of a gut check. Um, all right, so let's, let's not pretend like I was perfect before. And then we can kind of build you back up to that level. So that way, I think in some ways they accept not the side effect, but their quality of life as it is, instead of feeling super depressed, like I'm not 18 anymore, but I'm like, sir, you're 68. You're not 18 to start with. So we, we're never gonna get there. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guests today, Mike Shea and Darshan Patel from the UC San Diego Department of Urology. Welcome to the show, Mike and Darshan. I see those palm trees in the background. How's the day going? Oh, it's going pretty well. Thanks for asking. I'm very uh, excited to kind of be here. Mike, you hanging in there? Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, another sunny 70-degree day in San Diego. Excellent. Well, you know, one of the things that's really jumped out to me and is amazing resource for our patients and super impressive is this men's health clinic that we have here. It's comprehensive. It's amazing. You guys are incredibly accessible. And I think that, you know, one of the benefits of being in a tertiary quaternary referral center is that we have people with, you know, extensive, deep expertise in their diseases. And today we're going to focus our conversation on I say post-prostatectomy erectile dysfunction, but as I kind of prepared, I think it's post-prostate cancer treatment erectile dysfunction, you know, prostatectomy specific, as well as some of the post-radiation issues that we may encounter. So maybe just like kind of jumping on into it, do you all have some numbers in your head when you think about patients receiving treatment for prostate cancer in terms of the incidence of post-prostatectomy erectile dysfunction? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I can kind of jump in there. You know, obviously, uh, erectile dysfunction is kind of a, a major side effect of not only prostatectomy, but all prostate cancer treatments. And, you know, I think one of the key things that we commonly see is that a lot of patients don't realize the magnitude of that effect that it's going to have on their quality of life after they've undergone therapy. When they kind of see their initial surgeon, they are you know, have this understanding that, you know, their erections are going to be fine after surgery, especially if they have, you know, some degree of nerve sparing. But even if you kind of look at kind of the best series, even out of like Memorial Sloan Kettering with Dr. Mulhall, the likelihood that someone is going to 
return to good function after prostatectomy is not that great. I mean, it's, it's probably like 30% is what's been kind of reported there. So it's very common. You know, we see a lot of guys after prostatectomy as well as radiation suffering from uh, erectile dysfunction and kind of more broadly sexual dysfunction. That's kind of another thing where a lot of the focus is on getting erections back, but, you know, I think kind of uh, broadening it so that uh, you kind of focus on, you know, sexual function as kind of a component of their quality of life is also important. So when you're, you're kind of taking your intake, it's complicated, right? There's the patient, there's the partner, there's recall bias. How do you dig in and, and are there any standardized instruments that you generally like more so than others when doing your intake? Yeah, sure. I can take this one. We're very lucky we practice in an academic setting. So we, we get a lot of questionnaires. Patient kind of fills out before they have surgery. For the most part, we do carry on. We try to standardize some of the questionnaires. Like for sexual function, we use the SHIM score. And then for the urinary function, I would use the AUA prostate symptom score. We kind of coordinate that with our oncology colleagues. So that way we can keep, hopefully, the assessments pretty standardized so that way we can follow patients over time on what their function was like before treatment and what their functions like after treatment. Obviously, there's also a subjectivity to these kind of intake. If I see a 60-year-old man with a 60-year-old wife, their goals might be different than a 60-year-old man with a 30-year-old wife. So we try to tailor a little bit of their goals and their expectation to their individual situation as well. So I think that social history is also an important component of us trying to help them recover from their cancer treatment. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say that necessarily all risk factors for erectile dysfunction are the primary focus of today's talk, but age, diabetes, obesity, medications, I'm sure all of that kind of plays in. And certainly for me, when I'm thinking about preoperative counseling, you take your standardized questionnaires, your sexual health inventory, men's score, EPIC questionnaires, et cetera, and then I feel like there's almost like a correction factor for some of these things, unilateral versus bilateral nerve sparing and so forth. And my sense is in most of the erectile dysfunctional literature, it's largely the sexual health inventory men's score, which is used, which is nice because it allows for comparison across modalities as well. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's kind of what the most accepted, at least the most published instrument that we use. As you know, there's been advancements of cancer treatment, you know, over the last couple of decades, we've gone from open surgery to robotic surgery. We're also doing focal therapy and various things to try to improve outcomes, both quality of life and oncological outcomes. What I have seen in my career here is that as we transition to robotic surgery, um, most people's urinary function outcome after surgery has improved. It's rare that we see guys who is in diapers these days after robotic prostatectomy. However, the, the erectile function, we haven't made too much headway in that department, you know, whether it's despite we have better visualization of the nerves, despite, you know, we do, now we do red sea sparing, prostatectomy, various, you know, techniques. I, I feel like Darshan mentioned earlier that ED rate is pretty constant, you know, guys still need help. So as you know, we kind of advocate for a more of an early intervention, a rehabilitation approach instead of a wait and see approach in most of our cancer survivors. And how often are you seeing patients in the post-radiation context? I would say for rehab, not that many. We may get a handful that are 
really uh, enthusiastic about doing whatever they can to kind of optimize risk factors and, and decrease the likelihood that, you know, they're going to suffer from sexual dysfunction after the radiation treatment or shortly thereafter. So I would say fairly few compared to the guys that we see that are undergoing or planning to undergo prostatectomy. And I think that's also kind of a component of the, the referral patterns. You know, obviously urologists kind of understand the impact on erectile dysfunction may not be as kind of obvious to, you know, other radiation oncologists or other providers. Yeah. And, you know, Darshan, you kind of mentioned not just erectile function, but sexual function. Can you talk a little bit, I mean, you know, for unfavorable intermediate risk and more aggressive cancer, pretty much guideline directed therapy for radiation is going to be androgen deprivation plus radiation. Can you just talk a little bit about the effects of that ADT on sexual function and whether you're seeing patients in that context? Yeah, so ADD definitely is, is going to affect libido and interest in sexual activity while they're on that therapy. Guys are still, for the most part, I'd probably say a majority of guys are still able to get uh, good erections even, you know, despite being on ADT, but it's more so that interest in sexual activity that is kind of really affected while they're on that therapy. Trying to optimize things in terms of considering other, you know, sex therapy and things like that, kind of working with uh, their partner and, and, you know, having kind of an open line of communication is important, at least during that period that they are going to be on ADT to kind of help improve their quality of life. So generally you would say in somebody who's got pretty robust erectile function that libido is going to take a big hit, but erections may make it through the night. Yeah, I would certainly say that. There's definitely an age-related component to that, you knowing that uh, if they have kind of great function going into radiation therapy, the likelihood is, you know, they're not going to see kind of a, a night and day kind of change that you, you would see with uh, prostatectomy. Right. And, you know, it's, you touched on something regarding referral patterns and incidents. If you look at large-scale prospective studies with accompanying quality of life data, like PROTECT, for instance, you see early rates of erectile dysfunction in the order of about 60% after radiation. And over time, you know, that generally declines where we're looking at about 40%. And, you know, maybe it's a age-related phenomenon where elder patients are generally referred for radiation and sexual function may be deprioritized, or it could be who's asking. You know, I'd like to think that most people treating prostate cancer that are urologists, sexual function, cancer control, urinary is kind of part and parcel of the conversation. But, you know, it's certainly conceivable, I think, that it's somewhat under-addressed or unaddressed problem. What do you think? Yeah, I think 100%. So when I see a patient who is a prostate cancer survivor undergoing treatment, I told them we basically have three goals. First is to get rid of your cancer. Second is to make sure you don't wear a diaper for the rest of your life. And third is to preserve your erection or your sexual function. So we're not going to compromise one for the others. And I think oftentimes, patient, when they were first diagnosed with cancer, they're bombarded with so much information and that it just almost information overload. And then there's really no way in a single one hour or two visits to really kind of comprehend everything. So they kind of resort to Google and various own research and chat rooms to kind of get some information. So although it's not wrong, I think you know, the beginning part of the counseling does focus on oncologic control. A lot of times patient comes see me and Darsha and they were like, nobody told me this. Nobody told me that I'm going to be 
maybe leaking urine. Nobody told me that I'm not going to be able to have sex anymore. If they were to tell me, well, I would never choose this again. And we hear that over and over again. And I don't really think it's just surgeon trying to sell surgery, radiation college to want to want to sell radiation. It just, I like giving benefit of the doubt. I think it's just this information overload in the beginning. I'm not really sure they're a hundred percent ready or really comprehend all the side effects. And no matter how much information we give them and their after visit summary, they get a, you know, a stack of paper, 40 pages thick about A through Z side effect, but you know, it's just overwhelming, you know? So I think there's a lot of room in that area to hopefully give them better information or distill down to the information that's better for them. Totally. And I think it's a dynamic process. You know, if somebody told me, and I'm a lay person, that you have cancer, my first goal would be, I don't want to die of cancer. And that's where my energies would be focused on. And then like two years later, when I'm like clear and my scans are clear, my goals may not be on like, I don't want to die of cancer. It's I don't want to really deal with the side effects of my cancer treatment for the rest of my life. So I think it's absolutely a dynamic process. So We've talked a bit about getting patient intake. And I mean, in some ways, it's a bit more straightforward when the erectile function is actually quite poor heading into it. It's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's certainly not going to get any better. And we'll be managing this um, depending on how you do and how sexual function is prioritized. But how about kind of pre-treatment? Darshan, you, you'd mentioned if they're getting ADT, maybe like engaging a sex therapist might be like a decent option to help out with some of the libido concerns, but let's take, you know, a person that's got good erectile function, good libido, interest in sexual activity, and they've decided that prostatectomy is the way to go. And they're like, doc, what can I do to really, you know, put myself in the best spot to get through this, having erections? Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I would say we probably have two types of patients that we see. So we see the guys that are counseled regarding prostatectomy or are scheduled for it and want to kind of do whatever they can to really optimize, you know, their potency after the surgery and recovery afterwards. And then the second patient is the guy that we probably see who's, you know, eight, 12 weeks out from prostatectomy. And, you know, same thing, they're not having any spontaneous erections and are looking to kind of optimize from that standpoint as well. For the guy that we're seeing before prostatectomy, typically I talk to them about starting them on a vacuum erection device plus a low dose PDE5 inhibitor even prior to surgery. So if they can do that even, you know, one to two weeks prior to surgery, I think that can be beneficial. The longer, the better. Depending on the surgeon and with the surgery itself, usually they can either continue that low dose medication around the time of surgery, even while the catheter is in place, or they can hold it until they come back for catheter removal, and then they can initiate that low dose PDE5 inhibitor at that time. Depending on how aggressive they would want to be, usually we would see them back at about six to eight weeks after uh, surgery, and we would kind of talk to them about, hey, how are things going? You know, you can try doing kind of an on-demand dosing as well to kind of see if you're having kind of, uh, you know, good erections at that point. And if not, if they've tried that already and hasn't really been working, usually we'd, I'd talk to them about starting injection therapy, which, you know, for a lot of patients can be kind of frightening, but for the guys that you know, or interested in trying to do whatever they can to optimize recovery, you know, that does make sense. I think one of the challenges with formal penile rehabilitation is that, uh, you know, it really hasn't been proven to work. There have been kind of a lot of pretty good, you know, randomized studies that have looked at using low-dose PDE5 inhibitors 
and they haven't been able to really show an effect. But despite that, pretty much all major cancer centers use it, you know, that offer kind of nurse pairing prostatectomy. I think the key thing that, you know, we don't quite understand is, is the timing, you know, because ideally we want to kind of do these therapies around the time of, you know, whenever they have their surgery. And I think that's really been the challenge with a lot of the, the previous studies that have looked at penile rehabilitation for this purpose. Yeah. So I actually can't say that I was aware of like a, let's just call it pre-surgeries to kind of keep it simple intervention. I do generally tell patients to start Kegel exercises, you know, a couple of weeks before their operation. That's pretty standard, but I have not really been in the habit of prescribing, you know, low dose uh, Viagra, Cialis, Levitra before the operation or vacuum erection devices. And maybe I'll just ask you to talk a little bit more about vacuum erection devices. Sometimes I feel like they're a total cluster for patients getting them fitted properly, getting them obtained, how to use them. So is this something that you guys walk through, you know, in some detail with the patients? So usually, depending on the where they get it from, a lot of the, the companies that uh, supply or sell the device, they have kind of a one-on-one -on -one kind of review of what the device is, how to use it. Now with COVID, they've been doing it through Zoom, which has been nice for some patients. So that really cuts out the time that, you know, we need to spend talking about the device and how to use it and all that kind of stuff. I would say that it does take the right patient to kind of utilize that therapy because, you know, guys can get pretty frustrated with, uh, you know, if it doesn't quite fit or, you know, they're having pain or discomfort with using the device. So I would say out of the guys that we recommend it to, I would probably less than 50% actually buy it and, and use it prior to surgery, but can be a good option for those guys that really are trying to do whatever they can to kind of optimize recovery. Okay. Well, sounds straightforward enough. I'm going to start, you know, making that a part of my pre-surgical counseling to kind of get that going. And with the low-dose PD-5 inhibitors, any preference on Cialis, Levitra, Viagra? I've just kind of historically, I have no kind of conflict of interest here going with Cialis five milligrams daily, and then, you know, a 20 milligram challenge dose every week, 10 days or so, uh, once they've kind of gone beyond. So I, I start five milligrams once the catheter's out. And then I, I ask them to refrain from sexual activity for three weeks. So they don't get like a hernia, for instance, but any kind of preferences or data behind those preferences? Yeah. I don't think there's really a best one to take. People always have one to ask, well, what's the best one? You know, doc, give me the best one. Before these medications became generic, there's, it was actually quite cost prohibitive for the patient to take a PDE5 inhibitor every day. You know, that's like a hundred dollar a month ask. So every man care about the erection, but not everybody can afford that. And just like Darshan mentioned earlier, there's really no one data or protocol that's been rigorously studied that shows the most efficacious. Most of us use Cialis or Tadalafil because of the half-life, the medication is beyond 24 hours. So we think if the purpose of it is to restore circulation, penile blood flow on a daily rehabilitation purpose, then something that lasts all day makes the most sense. So that has been most people's preference in people who have side effects or intolerance or various reasons to the medication. That's when we go to other more shorter acting medications, such as, you know, Viagra or Levitra. But there was a period of my life when I was young and impressionable where everybody got a vacuum, everybody got the Cialis, everybody, you got to do all these things. Now we take a little bit more of a softer approach 
you know, like I mentioned before, we try to personalize it to the patient. In patient who's single or aren't very sexually active, we might use more vacuum pump as more of a stretch therapy. Because as we know, vacuum pump is not very good for sexual activity, but it's very good for stretching to preserve their penile size, to make them feel engaged that they are actively part of the recovering process. But in patients who have a partner who wants to be active, vacuum might not be the best option for them. So we kind of tailor these options really based on their individual situation. Yeah, you bring up a good point about stretch as the mechanism. And it doesn't come up often, but every now and again, I get a patient that's pretty fired up about loss of penile length. And, you know, I, I generally bring it up a centimeter to a centimeter and a half can occur, but it's not typical, you know, that the urethra is like a Nike symbol and where we've got some redundancy in there. But is this something when you kind of dig into it, that's a frequent complaint of patients? Yeah, it's definitely something that we see, especially in guys who never had any treatment and they come see us maybe six months or a year after treatment and they haven't had a normal or full erection the whole time, you know, since cancer treatment. We do know that it's one of those things that if you don't use it, then you lose it. You know, we should have used that analogy to the patients is that, you know, if, if a patient goes a full year without normal erection, there usually scar tissue or fibrosis can occur within the erectile tissue or the corporal body. And that probably the reason why the penis doesn't expand, it loses elasticity. So while we can restore the erection, we cannot, the penis doesn't just doesn't stretch the way it used to be. And I, have, ha, I haven't met a man who's so endowed that they don't care about losing any size. So every man cares, you know? So this is one of the, hopefully the motivating factors for them to be engaged at early in their recovery process. Even if we don't bring erection back, at least we're saving your size. So later on, you know, you can hopefully be as close to your pre-treatment fighting shape as possible. Yeah, you know, it just occurred to me, and I have no idea if there's any data behind this, so when I always ask patients, you know, even at their early post-op visit, hey, have you had any erections, morning erections, sense of fullness? And, you know, by all means, if they're like, yeah, you know, I, I woke up and there was certainly some fullness and, and I'm like, well, that's great. That tells me that the infrastructure is intact and over time you're going to do okay. And I say that, but as I reflect on it, I have no idea if there's any truth to that. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that certainly having early spontaneous erections or even kind of fullness down there probably is a reflection of kind of their trajectory as they kind of proceed with their recovery after prostatectomy. So I think that probably is is a good sign if guys are coming back, you know, at kind of their early follow-up and saying that they're having some kind of spontaneous activity down there. Okay. Well, I'm glad that's not totally made up and it does seem like there's some, some value in that. So maybe... You know, as we kind of walk through vacuum erection devices, PD-5 inhibitors, ICI, urethral suppositories, which I don't even know if anybody uses those anymore. What I might do is just kind of give you the condensed version of my erectile dysfunction counseling to a patient and see what you think about it. And then we'll maybe dissect these one by one. So I usually say off the record, you should be dry. Mike, kind of, as you mentioned that these days post-prostatectomy, continent isn't much of an issue. But erectile dysfunction is just much harder to predict. You know, your baseline function, nerve sparing, quality of the nerves, tissue-specific factors, all that. But what we'll do is, you know, pretty much when the catheter comes out, see how it's five milligrams daily. 
we initially check a PSA, you know, if they're super high risk, six to eight weeks, if they're standard risk closer to 12 weeks. At that point, depending on how you're doing and how this is prioritized, we can ramp things up. And generally that'll include vacuum erection devices. We can have you see our colleagues in men's health to discuss intracavernosal injections. And I literally say, I know it sounds terrible, but they're highly effective and patients love it. We can talk about urethral suppositories. And then if we're getting out to about a year and we're kind of not where we need to be, then we can talk about surgical correction. So that's my little abridged spiel, if you will. And maybe I'll just ask for some feedback on gaps, pros, cons, obsolete things like maybe urethral suppositories. What do you think? I'd love to hear it. I don't think anyone has ever said that they love injection therapy. So <laughs> um, I would say the compliance rates with injection therapy are way less than 50%, but uh, it, it can provide a good good erection quality for sure. Okay. Uh, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's pretty comprehensive. Actually, that's more than what most oncologists give out. I applaud you for that. Most people are like, hey, your PSA is uh, undetectable. You're not in a diaper. Good to go. Go see Mike or Darshan. You know, that's usually their counseling. So I think you already kind of like laid the framework for them. To me, my goal for them is really hopefully by six months, they can at least achieve a full erection. Usually it's assisted. I say nobody's sexual function is better after prostate cancer treatment than before. Otherwise, guys will be lining up around the block just to get prostate cancer treated, just to get better sexual function. You know, so we, I think a lot of it is really setting the right expectation. If you are at 80% before surgery, the best that can make you back, back up is 80%. You know, most likely it will come short a little bit already. So I think sometimes maybe you can add in a little bit of kind of an expectation kind of thing. If you are a Viagra guy before surgery, best case scenario, you'll be a Viagra guy afterwards. You know, so I think that kind of puts some perspective in them and have them kind of do a little bit of a gut check. Um, all right, so let's let's not pretend like I was perfect before. And then we can kind of build you back up toward that level. So that way, I think in some ways they accept not the side effect, but their quality of life as it is instead of feeling super depressed, like I'm not 18 anymore, but I'm like, sir, you're 68. You're not 18 to start with. <laughs> so we, we're never going to get there, you know? So I think that's that's hopefully we kind of try to put them in certain perspective for them. Yeah. The six months time frame, I think that's a really laudable goal. And I seem to recall some like, you know, seminal papers from when I was a trainee that, you know, you do see continual improvement, certainly up to about a year. And then even like a small percentage of patients that'll continue to improve like two to three years out. And again, this is, I just try to make it digestible for the patient. I'll say, you know, these are complex processes, nerves, blood vessels coming from the brain through the spinal cord all the way to the penis. And, you know, for them to recuperate and recover, it just takes some time and it can take up to a year. Is that a little on the lengthy side, in your opinion? Is that unreasonable if there's nothing kind of going on at eight months? Are they kind of in that bucket of likely not going to recur? I think it's kind of, like you say, it's kind of complex, right? But like Darshan Osho mentioned, there is kind of a trajectory of recovery, you know? So, so that's why we try to kind of put them, break them down into blocks of like milestones, you know, at three months, this is kind of where we want you to be at six months and nine months at 12 months. So if, if a guy at six months or nine months 
aren't getting the sexual function that we, we want them to get, that may be a time to introduce something more invasive, like an injection therapy. Cause that way, hopefully we can kind of bring them back on the trajectory of recovery. But you're right. Some people counsel up to a year and a half for recovery of sexual function or two years. But we do know that most of the recovery is probably done in the first year. I was the 80, 90% is kind of done. So I usually set this uh, graduation date for our cancer patients. Like you're about a year, 15 months after your treatment. That's kind of when we make some long-term plans. You know, we kind of go from the rehab mode to like, all right, this is what we got. And this is what we're going to do to kind of reach your, you and your partner's goals at that point. Okay. So we spent some time talking about PD-5 inhibitors, vacuum erection devices. For ICI, when you do that, major preferences, trimix, bimix, alprostadil, is there any meaningful differences between them? Usually uh, we would start them on trimix uh, just because it's probably the cheapest option and probably the most efficacious. If they have side effects, you know, pain with injections or, you know, worried about uh, refrigerating and all that kind of stuff, then, you know, we would try kind of the other formulations, either Bimex. I would say very rarely we're using just Alprostadil or Edex primarily because it's just so expensive. So do you, do you bring the patients in and actually walk them through how to do an injection, where to inject, all that kind of good stuff? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So we have them come in for a specific trial. They'll bring the medication. We actually inject them in the office, usually at kind of a lower dose. Most uh, guys that are post-prostatectomy, I'll do like 15 uh, units of Trimex, give them, you know, five, 10 minutes to kind of see what the effect is. I tell everybody, whatever, you know, effect we get here in the office, you know, the office isn't sexy at home. It's going to be double the response, even at the same dose. So, you know, with the right environment, the right stimulation, you're going to get kind of a better response. Cause a lot of guys will come in, we'll try the medicine. They'll be like, Oh, that's it. You know, it, <laughs> I psyched myself up for all this and, uh, you know, a lot of guys kind of disappointed, but I think kind of planting that seed in their mind that, you know, this is something that, you know, once you kind of get home, you know, you're going to be using this medication. You can go up on the dose. We give them specific instructions on how to do that up until kind of a, a maximum dose. So for Trimex with each injection, they can go up by five units until they get up to about 50. So they do have some wiggle room, uh, you know, at home to kind of do trial and error to kind of find that, that sweet spot for them. Okay. Do you give them anything in case they were to develop a priapism or is that mostly just kind of ED warnings? And what's the percentage that you quote? So I would probably say that the risk of priapism is certainly real with Trimex or Bimex. And that's the main reason that we trial the medication in our office. Most guys that have you know, less than a 50% response in the office with uh, Trimex, the likelihood that I would quote them that they're going to get a priapism is probably like five to 10%, you know, as they kind of go up on that dose at home. I think the key thing is they don't want to make any big jumps in the dose. Want to kind of take a stepwise approach, kind of uh, avoid getting priapism. We do talk to them about potentially having Sudafed that you would get behind the, the pharmacy counter at home just in case. That would be kind of an option if they have kind of a prolonged direction. So something that's like two hours, but uh, anybody that's going beyond kind of that two hour mark, basically I tell them, you know, get in the car, you know, you probably need to come in to be evaluated. Okay, you're not giving them a little low-dose phenylephrine injection or anything like that to kind of sort it out at home? No, not, not, for this, not for this indication. Yeah, I don't know how I'd feel about that either. I mean, even as a urologist, monitors and all that kind of good stuff, slow rate of infusion seems like a lot. 
What about urethral suppositories? Are those, what, what are y'all's thoughts on things like muse and so forth, intraurethral prostatil? Yeah, that's really kind of falling out of favor for a couple of reasons. One, they're very expensive. Number two, for it to work, you got to be pretty high dose. You got to be at least 500 or even a thousand. So what happens in those higher dose is that it causes a lot of urethral discomfort. So people was like, yeah, I did an erection, but my urethra is on fire. So it's like, I have a catheter again. You know, most men have that PTSD from the catheters, you know, after their prostatectomy. So they, it's kind of like bring back very negative memories. And so I think that's definitely one of the reasons why it's not well tolerated. It hasn't been used significantly. There are versions of bimix, trimix as intraurethral gel, and that's a little bit better tolerated. They're not as potent as the injections. So anything that we do intraurethrally, like guys has, you know, unsteady hands and we don't, we, we can really reliably do intracabinosal injections, then these urethral gel might be a reasonable bridging or next step for them. But in terms of the views, the old school suppository, that's really, you know, falling out of favor. Yeah. I certainly don't know the kind of data behind this, but I've never considered the urethra to be a particularly permeable epithelial structure. I mean, you think about the rectum and, you know, transrectal supposit, I mean, Tylenol or whatever, you know, Valium for people that are having seizures, but I, I've never thought about the urethra as something that's going to be like highly absorptive. Uh, I've never prescribed it. I, I certainly would probably get you guys engaged if that was something that a patient wanted. So in my mind, these are kind of the common backbone interventions but then, you know, by all means, there's other things that we do, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy, which I think we typically think about as a continence intervention, but does it impact sexual function at all? Yeah. So I think it certainly uh, can be helpful for recovery of sexual function as well. Um, like we kind of mentioned earlier, I think kind of becoming continent after surgery is very important because otherwise most guys, you know, are not interested really in engaging in sexual activity if they're kind of leaking all over the place. So I think the school therapy certainly is, is helpful for that. But in, in addition, there is kind of a, you know, there's been some evidence that kind of strengthening the pelvic floor muscles can improve erectile function. So I think it's certainly in guys that uh, are enthusiastic about it can be helpful. Yeah. So speaking of that, when it happens, even in continent men, I find that climacteria is very bothersome and alarming to patients. I can't say that I am an expert on this at all, and thankfully it's not something I've seen tons of, but I reviewed it one time, and I actually prescribe tamsulosin in that setting. And any updates on management of climacteria beyond like a condom or something along those lines? Yeah, so I would say that climacteria is probably more common than we think. Um, if you ask the questions, everyone will say that, yeah, you know, I, I do leak a little bit. There definitely is you know, urine leakage that occurs with orgasm. There's other guys that will get leakage specifically with foreplay or even prior to achieving orgasm. So kind of tweezing that out is important. In terms of kind of therapies, you know, a lot of it uh, deals with telling the patient to maybe empty the bladder before sexual activity. You mentioned, uh, you know, using a condom, that can be a good, good option. Also using like a silicone penile constriction ring towards the base of the penis can be helpful. And guys that are still having kind of issues and potentially considering surgical options, we can, you know, form that kind of a, a mini sling at the time of like a penile prosthesis, specifically for guys that have bothersome climacteria. So there are kind of surgical options as well. Okay. So 
I think motivated patients many times will probably ask for PT. You know, these are sometimes the patients that are down to like half a pad a day and they're like, I really want to get there and maybe that benefits. Then maybe I kind of group some of the other things as slightly less common. And these would be hyperbaric oxygen, low intensity shockwave, shockwave to the penis, and then penile vibratory stimulation. So maybe we can just walk through those one at a time and then additional ones that I'm certainly, it's possible I'm not aware of. Hyperbaric oxygen, how do y'all feel about that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's really much role for that. I know it's been used in sports medicine and orthopedic and rehabilitation for recovery of injury. It usually hasn't panned out from a sexual function or urinary function recovery standpoint, but by subjecting patients to hyperbaric oxygen. Yeah, conceptually it sounds great, right? Like extra oxygen, enhanced recovery, whether it's degube ulcers or a diabetic foot ulcer, we, I feel like we kind of sprinkle a little like hyperbaric oxygen on everything. And okay, so that one's not going to be one that we kind of keep in our toolkit. Behavioral modification, can you will yourself to have a erection? Well, I think, uh, you know, the role there would certainly be sex therapy. There's a lot of guys that uh, there is kind of a psychogenic component to their ED, even after prostatectomy. I mean, if we've kind of optimized them in terms of, you know, getting them on the right medications and, you know, under certain circumstances, they're able to get good erections, but, you know, if they're with their partner and they're not getting kind of the response that they would expect, you know, sex therapy can make sense there. And what about penile vibratory stimulation? So same thing, I think in, in the right patient, a lot of guys after prostatectomy will have orgasmic dysfunction. Same thing. It's kind of underreported. And I think in, after kind of uh, optimizing other risk factors, they may have, uh, you know, penile vibratory stimulation can be helpful in those guys. Okay. And I don't know how new it is. It's newer to me, but can you speak a little bit about shockwave therapy? You know, what the kind of mechanism of action is a bit, you know, what that entails. Is this like daily, weekly, monthly, and what your thoughts are on, on this relatively newer technology and intervention? So in terms of kind of shockwave therapy, the thought is that it's kind of a restorative option. The mechanism isn't quite understood as well as kind of other therapies. The thought is that it can help regenerate uh, some of the, the blood vessels within kind of the erectile tissue. And that's kind of been the underlying thought. It's certainly been explored for erectile dysfunction, uh, you know, all comers for the last maybe decade or so, a lot of the work being done outside of the United States. But more recently, there's certainly been an interest of using shockwave therapy for post-prostatectomy ED or even penile rehabilitation after erectile dysfunction. And I would say that there is some evidence that suggests that it can be helpful. It really comes down to trying to figure out what dose, what frequency, you know, when exactly the timing to do it after prostatectomy and all those things that we don't really quite have answers for. Yeah. I mean, I can just kind of see this taking shape of so much of what we've seen with in the female landscape with vaginal rejuvenation clinics and various interventions that are being done at like med spas. And I mean, you can kind of imagine a line out of a door for a clinic that offers shockwave lithotripsy for anybody that's having erections that are not kind of in line with what they expect. But you think that there's some legs to this and um, you know, I know that you guys have proposed a clinical trial, which we're working on together. I think that's excellent to kind of do it right, so to speak. But, you know, first question, is this something that, you know, might have some legs to stand on and maybe even just discuss a little bit about what you're proposing? 
Yeah, so I say yes. There, I think there's definitely some legs to this therapy. But uh, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of unanswered questions. And I would say for the most part, until we have a better idea, I wouldn't necessarily recommend giving everyone uh, post-prostatectomy, uh, low-intensity shockwave therapy. You know, what we've been working on and what we kind of talked about before was kind of coming up with a trial where basically we're trying to figure out if we can introduce a low-intensity shockwave therapy earlier after the initial kind of insult at the time of the surgery, whether or not that can optimize recovery. Because a lot of the studies that have been done before, they've been done on guys that, you know, are about a year out or two years out from prostatectomy. And there is some good literature from other countries where they've tried shockwave therapy within four weeks of prostatectomy and, you know, have shown favorable results. But that never really has been kind of replicated with kind of a, you know, robust uh, design. So our thought is that, you know, using the combination of penile rehabilitation that, uh, you know, we commonly utilize to kind of incorporate shockwave therapy in that treatment protocol where we kind of have guys come back fairly soon after prostatectomy within about six to eight weeks and, uh, you know, get them started on shockwave therapy. And uh, the way that we've kind of designed the study is basically they would come in twice a week for three weeks at a time and they would kind of repeat that treatment course up until about six months. Okay. So twice a week for three weeks at a time, and then there's like a off period and then they come back in? Correct. And is that kind of like a PRN off period or is this like a schedule, like three weeks on, three weeks off? How does that work? Exactly. So it'd be kind of three weeks on, three weeks off after they're kind of enrolled in that portion of the study. Yeah. And so first question, anything kind of general class of interventions for post prostate I mean, we obviously didn't talk about surgical correction of ED. But other things that we didn't kind of touch on over the course of this chat? No, I think we kind of covered pretty much all the non-surgical options, which we wouldn't offer surgery. It's pretty rare we, we offer surgery in men that's within the first year during their re-recovery period anyways. Maybe with the exception of men with non-nurse bearing, erectile dysfunction, pre-op, you know, those kind of guys we might do them at six, might offer surgery at six months or something like that. But for most of the guys, I think... We want to give them a chance. So we, we try to give them as many of these adjuvant treatments. We stack them on top of each other. We use as many combinations as possible to kind of bring them back. So there are certainly people want to try, you know, to go vegan. People want to try a lot of other lifestyle modifications. And, and some people swear by it. You know, some people say that, you know, I'm a cancer patient. As you know, diet is a huge thing these days, especially in California. Maybe not in Dallas, um, in California, everybody's vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, everything free, you know? So whether how much of that play a role into oncological outcome and also functional outcome is still to be determined. We encourage all the patients to obviously be healthy. Maybe cancer was a wake-up call for them to circuit their life in order. And we do know that, you know, some of the sexual functions especially erectile dysfunction is related to other metabolic syndrome and other cardiovascular potential complications. So this is kind of a good time for them to kind of take charge. There are also people always want to try supplements. You know, that's another thing that if people come to us with a list of supplements that they take or they, they're, they've been advertised to spam going, coming up on their social media feeds and that kind of stuff. So in general, my feeling about the male enhancement supplements has been is really a mixed bag of things. 
the supplement industry is regulated by the USDA, not the FDA. This was back when Warren Hatch was the senator. It was an act that was passed, led by him. I think it was senator from Utah, right, Darshan? Yeah, he just passed away. Yeah, so, um, and his son was supposedly a big supplement industry guy. So his, the father Hatch helped pass this law to get the supplement industry under a different regulatory environment. And because of that, they are not required to list all the active ingredients on the bottle. And also they don't have to be tested as rigorously as pharmaceuticals that have to undergo FDA. So unfortunately we see a lot of guys taking these supplements and I'm in an emergency room with liver failure and um, renal failure because some of the ingredients are just taking a 5,000 daily allowance percentage is not good for them. So we try to tell people to stay away from these things if we can, but there's a huge multi-billion dollar industry and guys will continue to explore that side. Yeah, I think they're excellent points. I mean, exercise, sleep, hygiene, supplements, and diet. I think these are actually things that if you engage like a complementary and functional integrative medicine person who's not with misaligned priorities, it could actually be exactly as you describe. And I, I feel like just over the last couple of years, there was some study that looked at the components of kind of male supplements and like 70% of them had testosterone in them. So, you know, there, there's that, I think. But that's really, I think, an excellent point. And so what kind of gets you excited? I feel like we've been at largely PD-5 inhibitors and ICI. I mean, certainly over the course of like my entire training, which is, you know, now spanning like close to like 15 years or so. What makes, you know, what's kind of coming through the pipes that, that you're like, yeah, this could be a game changer? Or is there anything? Well, there's certainly uh, for a long time, for a lot of urologic reasons, Botox has been kind of an interesting thing. It's been looked at for erectile dysfunction with some positive studies, some kind of, uh, you know, equivocal. But I think for penile rehabilitation, the thought is that if we can administer Botox intracavernosal around the time of prostatectomy, it has kind of a, a longer duration of action. So, you know, three to six months. So the period of time that they are recovering, you know, they have a catheter in place or, you know, they are leaking urine, they're not going to have sexual activity anyway. We're kind of deriving that benefit. And the mechanism is, is fairly simple that the idea is that it can kind of relax some of the, the smooth muscle component of it and uh, allow more blood flow through the cavernosal artery. And that's been the theory. No one's really looked at it kind of rigorously, but, the, you know, the thought is that this could be indicated for this. All right. Well, that's great. So... You know, I think uh, certainly it's become more obvious to me that management of post-prostatectomy erectile dysfunction is, is complex, you know, really taking in patient status, patient's prioritization, desire to really work on this requires, you know, expertise. And I certainly feel grateful to have colleagues like you, despite the fact that none of my patients have to see you all for any type of post-prostatectomy issues. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I think as we, as we kind of wrap up, you know, any kind of like parting thoughts for the listenership when it comes to this particular issue? Yeah, I think for the urologists, to me, this is something that we know and that we all value cancer survivorship more than ever. And that I think most of us care about sexual health and that we just kind of have to be realistic and honest with patients when we discuss, not just for prostate cancer, but other treatment mortalities such as BPH and other things that we do for patients. So, so I think increasingly 
we are starting to recognize sexual health complications is pretty devastating to patients that I think proper counseling is something that most of us are starting to emphasize beyond just treatment options and alternatives and benefits. You know, I think that's something that we're starting to focus more. And I think for the non-neurologists, a lot of people don't even know this is what we do. So I think it's a resource that men's health is such a mixed bag. You know, when you Google men's health on the internet, there's all kinds of anti-aging, all kinds of regenerative medicine, performance enhancement, that kind of clinic out there. So I think part of our job is really to try to legitimize the field and try to do good research. So that way we have good data supporting the things that we do. Because unfortunately, the reputation of men's health, people think it's just some kind of low T shot clinic at a strip mall, you know? So, so that's really my job. That's really all of our job is to try to, you know, push the medicine forward and legitimize the field. Darsh, anything to add to that? That was really nicely said, Mike. No, that was, that was, yeah, that was great. I think kind of the, the two things I would say in terms of kind of expectations, I think for urologists performing prostatectomy, you know, preoperatively just be realistic with the patients. I mean, we always hear about patients that have had their surgery by prominent urologists, not in San Diego, you know, saying that they were told that there was a 99% chance that their erections would be back, uh, you know, after surgery, but that is very unrealistic or kind of a big kind of miscommunication between kind of the counseling urologist and the patient. And then secondly, I think postoperatively, if you're seeing these patients, you know, ask the questions. Guys are concerned about erectile function and urinary leakage afterwards. And, uh, you know, if they aren't kind of improving or aren't on the right trajectory, refer them to, to someone that you know, potentially could get them the help that they need. Yeah. And I mean, for me, one of the things that kind of jumped out is whether we're really doing a good job screening patients after radiation for post-prostate treatment, erectile dysfunction, kind of more broadly. So something that perhaps we can engage our radiation oncology colleagues to make sure they're aware of, of the resources that are available. Well, hey guys, again, a wealth of information. Thanks for your time, really enjoyed it and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.